It was wonderful today. I've been touring around campus. Um, students packed out down in Fellowship Hall for Circle Church. College students leading a raise the roof worship service over at Berean. Students serving right now down in our control center for our broadcast ministry, which by the way, we now have moved up to our high definition cameras. Uh, students serving in Sabbath schools, students greeting, students preparing food, students lifting our hearts through music. Um, I heard uh, last week somebody was lamenting, well, college students just don't participate in church anymore. Wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and wow. How blessed, what a blessing to be a part of this campus where students are in a local parish, in a real local church congregation, ministering with such meaning. Uh, what a great place to be. So um, I was going to say something, Julie, about that I'm five foot seven. A little bit of a bond there. Um, if you're brave enough, will you just put your hand in the air, everyone in the house? Everyone put a hand in the air. Uh, every hand in the house raised represents we, all of us, are the pastoral staff of the Walla Walla University Church. Every hand raised. Uh, we haven't talked much about it in recent days, but uh, a reminder that the priesthood of all believers, a biblical idea, the pastorate of all believers, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every college student on this campus, that all of us are in the business of ministry. There is no distinction between those who have the word pastor in front of their name. Anybody else? Everybody is a pastor. However, it is true, the New Testament says, that there are certain folk in the community that are called to fuller-time efforts in the business of equipping the pastoral staff. And some of that group for this congregation stands before you now. Now, some of these cats you know uh, pretty well. Pastor Troy, who ministers in many ways, but specifically to our high school students and our collegians. Uh, let's see. Pastor Lois, who um, is the senior pastor of this church, who uh, in immaturity and wisdom in many other ways, uh, who is our uh, extraordinary community chaplain who cares for all of us in this church when we are uh, suffering. Uh, Pastor Chris Lowen, who uh, ministers uh, through uh, communication and through our website, through our worship services, and a number of other ways. So uh, those are names and faces that you might be familiar with. In the last year, just a little bit of a reintroduction, we've been joined by Pastor Jennifer Ogden. And as I travel about, people keep saying to me, sort of my colleagues and people, how did you get her there? We wanted her. And I don't reveal my secrets, but uh, here she is, and we are blessed to have someone in such high demand in College Place, Washington, USA. Uh, just an amazingly gifted woman uh, with a humble spirit and wakes up in the morning, I'm pretty sure, deciding to do everything possible completely in that one day. Um, that's, that's her spirit. Um, also blessed uh, to have Jamie Durding, a graduate of this institution, who wore the finest cords on graduation day, who distinguished herself here, who is our office manager, which means, and I don't say this as a joke, it means she basically runs this congregation. Amen. Seriously, friends. She is the hub of the wheel 
that keeps everything spinning so well. And uh, I've looked into her face so many times as I've been trying to explain something to her, and she gives me that look, and I figured out what that look is. <laughs> I've already figured out what you're trying to explain to me. Um, she's smart and quick and dedicated to God, and we're so blessed to have her and to have Sam, her husband, uh, here in our midst. And then um, our latest addition is Pastor Allery's Collie, who stands here to my right. Uh, Allery's comes to us from Michigan, but before that, the Bahamas has also worked in Argentina, in Costa Rica, in Africa. She speaks more than one language. She has a background both in business and in ministry, undergraduate degrees in economics and Spanish with a Master's of Divinity degree. And we wanted to continue the, the great tradition of Pastor Henning Gouldhammer of someone who has good business sense and good pastoral sense, bringing those together. And we are thrilled to have Pastor Colley in our midst today. And uh, uh, again, I'm just blown away by how quick and sharp and smart and compassionate and wise and a killer sense of humor. Uh, we need to talk about that a little bit, by the way. <laughs> um, we are blessed to have this woman in our midst. And so this is sort of her official introduction to the congregation. So uh, would you like to say something to everyone? And then Alarise will be at the back in our narthex afterwards. And I think it'd be great if she had loads of people welcoming her to the community. But uh, Alarise? Happy Sabbath. Happy Sabbath. <laughs> it is a great pleasure for me to be here today. I have gotten such a warm welcome in spite of the weather, in spite of the weather, and I am truly excited to work along with this team and to serve you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Let's give her a hand. Let's just bow our heads one more time. Father in heaven, I want to pray for the pastoral staff of this church, and that is everyone in this room. Even the man or woman who slipped in as a guest today. For you don't wish for any of us to wait to begin blessing the world around us. But particularly now, I just wish to lift up Allery's colleague to you, our new colleague and friend, one who will provide guidance to us in so many areas. I pray that she would find this place to be such a blessing in her own life, but also she would find purpose as she reaches out and serves us through her expertise, through her passion, through what the Spirit does through her. God, again, I thank you for the richness of this local community. I pray that we be faithful to your gospel purposes both today and every day until that day when you come again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. So our first child was a dog, a fluffy little seven-pound Pomeranian named Rosie, about the size of a basketball until you gave her a bath, and then a golf ball, very, very small. She had issues. I think we created some of them. Um, she was what we called a social eater. Nicole and I would, would use this term. 
Wherever we were eating in the house, living room, dining, whatever, she had to eat there, and she would pester us until we moved her food and water to that location. She did not have her own bed. She slept in our bed. Uh, when she was a puppy, she had a knee issue, had to get some orthopedic work done, was in a cast, and we went out and got a beanbag so that she could convalesce in comfort. Um, she died a little too early from a heart condition, but she had a load of issues. But above all, she had a prevailing fear. And when she would encounter this fear, the object of it, she would run around the house in a panic, barking and biting, her heart racing, so upset, stressed and uh, beside herself. In fact, uh, uh, unfortunately, she would often urinate and defecate in the house. Just in a panic. And what was this fear? Suitcases. <laughs> suitcases. The moment Nicole and I would take out our suitcases, she knew exactly what that meant. We were leaving her behind. She couldn't take it. We were going somewhere she could not go. We were experiencing something she could not experience. We had teased her with the possibility that she was human and then ripped it all away for we were leaving her behind. And then when the two human children came on the scene, that was even worse. Four suitcases and these two vermin you're taking with, with you and I'm staying here, that upset her all the more. Her greatest fear, those suitcases, a fear of being left out. And I suspect that the most foundational fear and the most widespread phobia that we have as human beings is precisely this. We are afraid that someone is going to leave us because someone is better looking because someone is more athletic, because someone has made more money, they have traveled more exciting places, they have found love, they have titles, they have positions, PhD is at the end of their name, but ah, everyone looks to them as someone accomplished. I suspect in the quiet moments of our lives, what we fear most is someone is better than us. Someone is stronger than us. Someone gets to go somewhere, and we've been left behind. It is to this universal core phobia, this malady that we face in a survival of the fittest world, where we are all scrambling for meaning and belonging, that we turn in this series, God's Kitchen, to a passage of scripture, a story centered on the subject of offering. Mark chapter 12 reads, beginning in verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Jesus' is people watching, sitting on a bench, and he invites us today to sit next to him and watch. 
historians and scholars of antiquity tell us that as the folks would come into the temple to give their offerings, perhaps a special room, a passageway, but most certainly a box where people would put their gold and precious materials. But we, almost, we also learn in almost a certainty, certainly know, that there would be a temple official at the box, verbalizing the amounts that people would give calling out the numbers. Imagine this morning if when the offering receptacle went by your pew, there was an electronic device that announced the amount as it sat in your lap. Twenty, fifty, a hundred, two hundred, a thousand, five, zero, 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 five, and on it would go. Imagine that. Well, this is what we believe was going on at the temple. Shout-outs of the amounts of what people were giving. Verse 41, continuing, says, many rich people threw in large amounts. The historian Josephus, who is prone to exaggerate, but it does give us some sense, uh, suggested that just decades before this particular event, some 176,000 pounds of precious metals had been taken away from the temple. Large sums of money are given by the wealthy, and when you look at the economy of the time, you are thinking of Religious leaders have the money. Political and governmental leaders have the money. And anyone associated with that class who would own the land, who would own the coin, these are the people coming in who are doing better than most at the great game of the survival of the fittest. Verse 42, But a poor widow came in and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Now, the word poor and widow, redundant. For in the first century, as you are likely aware, to be a widow would land one either in the business of begging or the business of prostitution, but most certainly in the business of just trying to survive the day. Verse 43, calling his disciples to him, and therefore calling all of us in this room to him. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. Now, what is the point of this story? What is Jesus trying to teach us? First, I think we have to be careful that we just don't dodge out of this story altogether. For I think when most of us read this story, first of all, we say, I'm not rich, so that's not me. But we also say, I'm not the poor widow, I'm not quite there, so I'm not sure I can relate to any of the characters in this particular story. So first off, I think we need to just acknowledge that we should embrace all of the characters and see how they might impact our, if you will, middle-class lives, because most of us are going to position ourselves somewhere in the middle. Also, I think that we need to just point out on the outset that Jesus is certainly not saying that to be rich is wrong, nor is he saying that to be poor is somehow a virtue, nor is he saying that giving large offerings at the church is a wrong thing to do, for there's plenty of places in the scripture where rich generosity on the part of those who have managed money well blesses the church. 
And I also suspect that Jesus is not making a clever mathematical point alone, that in fact she gave a bigger percentage of what she had to give. No, I think there's something else, and so let us return to the language of Jesus. His first observation, these people here gave out of their wealth. First off, their whole approach to temple, the way that they're coming to the church, the way that they wish to interact with God, is to do so in a fashion where there is little disturbance to their current state of being. This is not merely about giving offerings. This is about worship. This is about how I invest my life and interact with the divine, how it is that I approach the very presence of God in the temple. Some people, Jesus says, enter it, but they do so very carefully. They give up very little. They don't want to risk much at all. It's as if they expect on a Sabbath morning to go to their closet, put on suit and tie, dress or pantsuit, show up for church for a couple of hours, and pretty much what's expected is to go back home, put all of those clothes back in their place, hardly needing a fresh iron, and life goes on. An expectation that temple will not change me very much. But I think the deeper point that Jesus is making, even more than sort of the casual approach to how being in the presence of God ought to impact one, is that these rich people, in this case, are perpetuating the way that the world works outside of the church. This survival of the fittest, scrambling to be the one to be able to take the suitcases and go someplace, this mad scramble to be wanted, to be desired, to be loved, to be noted as someone who is successful, they show up for the church, at the church and nothing changes. Their religion isn't confronting this way of being one iota. In fact, the way that they're giving offerings the way that they're engaging in the life of the church only exacerbates, magnifies, grows this situation. The folks that have managed to be slightly better off in the world love that it is announced at church. Look at the size of the offering, meaning look at how well this person has their act together. They work hard, they have a fam they're lucky enough not to have been sick or injured. God is surely blessing them. The church becoming a place where we just establish a pecking order. Jesus, I think, is saying it is easy to come to church and not be able to derail this system that we live in where we are scrambling wishing to belong, wishing to be looked at as if we are valuable. So a couple of weeks ago, I was traveling across the country to speak to a group of church leaders. And I had prepared talks that were hoping to shift them from thinking about themselves as leaders to people. And I had coaxed them, begged them, asked them if I could bring my wife along, would they be willing to pay for that plane ticket as well? And sure enough, they agreed, and so Nicole and I are on the plane, sitting in the cattle section, but a little bit further forward than normal. We're in our seats when all of a sudden, 
This man passes me by in the aisle, walks into first class, which I can see from my vantage point, and the second he passes me, my palms start sweating. My heart starts racing. I'm starting to fidget and twist, and Nicole looks at me and says, what are you doing? I said, do you know who that is? That is Sir Nick Faldo, one of the greatest golfers ever to walk the earth. And she actually knew who this was, and some of you do, some of you don't, but Nick Faldo, six major championships, three masters, three British Opens, uh, a broadcaster now with CBS News. I mean, this is like an idol of mine. He walks up and he sits in seat 1A, right at the front of first class, and I'm straining to see him. This guy, he's like six foot six, he's good looking, he has that rich English accent. I mean, it's like the whole plane has now been blessed with divinity on the plane. It's un That's how I feel anyway, I don't know if anybody else. And I'm craning my neck, the plane takes off, and just to see the back of his head, it's like, you know, Moses in the back, you know, in the back of God. I mean, just, ah, oh, just to see the back of his, and I'm just thinking, oh man. And all of a sudden, my worship, starts to turn to some self-reflection. And I think, why am I not sitting up there? What have I done with my life? I'm not a particularly good golfer. I haven't made that much money. People don't nod each other and look and say, do you know who that is when he gets on the plane? I'm not six foot six. I started to have these feelings. I kid you not. And then my mind goes to second grade. I am two things, if nothing else. I'm a reader, and I am competitive. And I remember in second grade, we had a competition to see who could read the most pages. And there was a, a star chart up at the front, right? So you could track, sort of like the polls in a presidential election. You could kind of track who was doing well. And I was monitoring that every day, and I was in the lead. On the last day, a friend of mine, a former friend of mine, <laughs> he and his mommy bring in this huge stack of books that he's read, and star, 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 and I got the silver medal. All of a sudden, how many years later, 40 years later, all of these feelings are coming back into my soul. What am I doing? What am I thinking? And then my mind races to like about 25 years ago, and the, and the number 48 hits me right in the forehead. 48%. That's what I got when I ran for student body president in college. 48%. And Rob, 52%. Why do I know those numbers? What is the matter with me? And I looked down at my notes as I was preparing these talks to convince leaders that they should not think of themselves in terms of their position, but as people. How easy is it, friends, to slip back into the way that Jesus looks at those people? And I think it breaks his heart because he sees nothing is changing as you're in the presence of God and it's killing you. How many stories do we know of quote-unquote successful people, athletics or money or politics, that are incredibly depressed? Huh? 
So even the people at the top, uh, Philip Reeve, who's um, one of the more famous sociologists and philosophers of the 20th century, wrote a book entitled Charisma, The Gift of Grace and How It Has Been Taken Away from Us. And he has many excellent observations, but among them this. The opposite of grace, he says, the opposite of grace is publicity. Think about that. He says the opposite of grace is publicity. Now we think of publicity as famous people, but he, he's meaning it in, in, in a much broader way that on the one side, publicity. I want other people to say, we want one another to say of each other, you have arrived, you've done well, you've made money, you look good, you, are, you're, you can pack a suitcase and come with us. Publicity. And the opposite of publicity, he writes, is grace. This hunger for approval, this desire that others will look at us when we walk on the airplane or down the sidewalk, this desire that others will say, you have lived your life well, you have achieved, a consumption with that, Reef says, robs us of grace. These people gave out of their wealth when they came to the church. They were consumed with $2,000, publicity the approval of others. And when there is no grace, my friends, when we are on that treadmill of approval, I submit to you, we become needy. Needy. At least I do. And we run around like a little Pomeranian puppy, upset, losing our minds and losing our bodies because we have been told you can't go there. You're not part of us. You cannot travel. They gave out of their wealth, and Jesus is concerned. They're not taking what should happen in the church seriously, but beyond that, they're continuing to participate in something that creates such anxiety. Instead, he turns our attention now to this woman, a widow. Jesus says to us, she gives out of her Poverty. She puts everything in. She is all in. First and foremost, she is taking church seriously. She expects that her life will be turned upside down because of her participation in the presence of God. But more than that, she cashes out on the ways of the world. She decides it's not worth participating in this game. And so she comes to the church vulnerable, rejecting publicity in hopes of grace. Vulnerability. I came across a description of this. Barbara Brown Taylor, a beautiful essay, The Practice of Wearing Skin. The practice of wearing skin. Uh, listen in to her words. She writes, I can say that I think it is important to pray naked. Let me back up and say that again. I can say I think it is important to pray naked in front of a full-length mirror sometimes, especially when you are full of loathing for your body. 
Maybe you think you're too heavy. Maybe you have never liked the way your hip bones stick out. Does your body sag? Are you too hairy? It is always something. Then again, maybe you have been sick or come through some surgery that has changed the way you look. You've gotten glimpses of your body as you have bathed or changed clothes, but so far maintaining your equilibrium has depended upon staying covered up as much as you can. You have even discovered how to shower in the dark so that you may have to feel what you presently loathe about yourself, but you do not have to look at it. This can only go on for so long, she writes, especially for someone who officially believes that God loves flesh and blood no matter what kind of shape it's in. Whether you are sick or well, lovely or irregular, there comes a time when it is vitally important for your spiritual health to drop your clothes, look into the mirror, and say to God, Here I am. This is the body like no other that my life has shaped. I live here. This is my soul's address. Amen. This is my body. This is my life. This is my story. This is who I am, Jesus. And the woman comes to the temple hoping against hope that after all, the church of Yahweh might be a place of grace and not a publicity. And I wonder what she sees Jesus sitting on the bench looking at her as she looks into the mirror of Jesus. Does she see a smile of approval and grace in, in return? I think so. I've wondered over the years, reflecting on the Gospels, why is it that Jesus so often exposes people against their will? Have you ever thought about that? Or has that ever bothered you? Jesus walks up to folks, and often it is religious leaders, and he undresses them, right there in public. He says to them, you're wearing these fancy robes, but let me tell you what's underneath that robe. And he starts to enumerate all of the flaws in their life. You think that you're these whitewashed tombs all clean on the outside. Jesus, oh, let me tell you about what's really inside. What is Jesus up to? On first glance, it may seem that he's being cruel, but I think in in a second look, we understand that the kindest thing that he could do for someone living in this world of pretense, on the inside, ripped apart, not sure of one's security before God and man. Jesus was saying, let it all out. Let your sagging body hang out before me and all of its warts and all of its brokenness. And I suspect Jesus particularly picked on religious leaders for they symbolized the church. And Jesus is making a statement saying, in the church, in spiritual community, in a faith congregation where I am at the center, Jesus says, it cannot be a place of publicity anymore. It must be a house of grace where we walk into community with one another and before God, laying aside, renouncing, and denouncing the world of who has earned what and who has achieved what and how have I accomplished myself in a way that I get to take a suitcase and go. 
I wonder sometimes, how are we doing as a church? Almost exactly seven years ago from right now, I was back in the East Coast packing up to move here. And I remember sitting in a meeting. There were world church leaders from everywhere at this convocation, okay? Famous people, the brass, people you would know. And they're all mingling about, and I was sitting in a room, and someone introduced me, just as Alex Bryan introduced me to one of these church leaders. And immediately I knew the reaction. Turn of the head, disinterested in having this conversation. And I knew that look, because I too often give that look. And maybe you do too. Right after that, the person that had introduced us leaned over to this leader and whispered. I could hear it. I could see it. That's the new senior pastor of the Walla Walla University Church. In a second, that leader turns around and wishes to engage me in a long, deep conversation that I can hardly get out of. And I had this incredible pit in my stomach. that I would be valued for a position, but not as a person. And I wonder, to what degree does our church play this game? Are we part publicity and part grace, or are we just all publicity? I got to tell you, in the, in, in the professional world that I work in, we get all the emails. Uh, the new president of this and president of that and leader of that and president of this and pastor of this and the top leader here and there. And we, oh, we love the positions. I've never gotten an email celebrating a kindergarten teacher in Fresno, California. I've never gotten an email celebrating the community services volunteer in Topeka, Kansas. I've not ever gotten an email celebrating the middle-aged young adults caring for children and aging parents all at the same time faithfully. Oh, we love positions of power. And while I'm at it, the whole argument about ordination is about who's got the title and who doesn't. Are we a community of grace or a community of publicity? How do we function? Are we brothers and sisters or are we PhD, master's levels, baccalaureate, and high school dropout? Are we wealthy and poor or are we just siblings in the arms of God? What are we practicing? Jesus looks at this woman and says, ah, she is hoping for, desiring a culture, not a publicity in the church. Who cares? But a community of grace. A sweet community of grace. Anne Lamott writes that she is leading her Sunday school class with two students two children in it, both disabled. A little girl she doesn't name, a 
a young man named Mason. Both mentally and physically, she terms it other abled. Mason, brain cancer, a four-year battle, leaves him with a brain injury. She's doing this simple craft with them, and she explains in grand detail how she's helping these two build the craft. And then Lamont writes this. Mason made an astonishing comment. He said to the girl, adamantly, in his slightly garbled and mumbly way, You know, I used to have brain cancer. I was in a coma. And then I was here again. I had to close my eyes at the beauty of this understanding. But he was here again. He had woken up, as we are all called to do. I said, you are a miracle. The girl asked me in her own slightly garbled way, why does he talk so funny? Mason didn't seem to notice. He said, yes, I am a miracle. And then he raised his arms and fists like a muscle man. You are a miracle. Every one of us in this room is a miracle. No matter what has happened to your mind or your body, no matter how many times you have failed, no matter whatever in life seems elusive to you, my friends, everybody gets a suitcase. Everybody's with Jesus. Everybody is welcome to the party. Jesus invites every one of us into a place of belonging as the rich, beloved, honored human beings that we are. You know, I was thinking about that old hymn, I will cling to the old rugged cross till at last my trophies I lay down. I can't wait for that day when we lay it all down. In fact, impromptu moment, hymn 159. We're going to sing twice at the end of this service. Let's sing together.